Hi, everyone. We're conducting an audience survey, and we'd be really grateful if you could take just a few minutes and answer a few questions. Please visit survey.prx.org happiness to take the survey today. That's survey.prx.org happiness. Thank you. The Science of Happiness is brought to you by Progressive, one of the country's leading providers of auto insurance. With Progressive's Name Your Price tool, you say what kind of coverage you're looking for and how much you want to pay, and Progressive will help you find options that fit within your budget. Use the Name Your Price tool and start an online quote today at Progressive.com. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And while I was working, headphones on, swaying to the new De La Soul record, Delight, I noticed a white girl. She looked 15, but could have been, I suppose, a college student, standing next to me with her hand raised. I looked up, confused, and pulled my headphones back, and she said, like a coach or something, working on your paper? Good job to you, high five. And you better believe I high-fived that child in her pre-ripped Def Leppard shirt and her itty-bitty Doc Martens. For I love, I delight in unequivocally pleasant public physical interactions with strangers. What constitutes pleasant, it's no secret, is informed by my large-ish male and cisgender body. A body that is also large-ish male, cisgender, and not white. In other words, the pleasant, the delightful, are not universal. We should all understand this by now. I'm Emiliana Simon-Thomas, the Science Director at the Greater Good Science Center, filling in this week for Dacher Keltner. What would it be like to take some time out every day to savor the small things in life? That's the challenge award-winning poet Ross Gay gave himself on his 42nd birthday, to chronicle things that brought him joy each day for one year. On every episode of our show, we have a happiness guinea pig try out a practice, backed by research, to build kindness, resilience, or connections to the people around us. Today, we're talking with Ross about his own practice, which he shares in his most recent book, The Book of Delights, which is a series of 102 short essays about the small and often overlooked sources of joy around us. Ross, thank you for joining me on The Science of Happiness. Yes, yeah, my pleasure. I'm glad to be here. Writing about anything every day for a whole year is no small feat, particularly when you're trying to consistently focus on the positive. Was it hard for you to write about delights for a whole year? At the beginning, I was a little bit worried that I wouldn't have enough things to write about. And within a couple of weeks, I became much more attentive to the number of things that were like sort of truly delightful that I often sort of overlooked in my daily life. I would find a little time to do my, my little writing, and I would have to think about, well, that thing was delightful, that thing was delightful, that, well, let me try to think about this thing, you know, mm-hmm. getting to choose. That was sort of the fun part. But the other thing is that there were other days when the not delightful was sort of weighing heavily on my mind, and that was also something that this book sort of contends with. Did you find that it was ever difficult to find the time to write about or contemplate delights on a given day? I gave myself, I think, three rules. The first one was write something every day, which I promptly broke. I think by the fourth day, I I skipped. (laughs) Um, And then I gave myself the rule to write them by hand. And then I gave myself the rule to draft them quickly. And for me, quickly meant 30 minutes. And... 
So in terms of like finding the little 30 minutes or whatever amount of time it took, it actually wasn't a challenge time-wise for me. Sometimes they would come out and you know, 10 minutes, or it would literally almost be transcribing a conversation that I had or something like that. And sometimes I would have several essays that I would write in a single day. I just had a little bit more time and I kept on going with it. One thing I love about the Book of Delights is that some of the things you write about are are small or mundane that most of us might just overlook. For example, you wrote about seeing a hummingbird on a busy street Would you be willing to share that prose with us? Yeah, for sure. Today, as I was walking down Foothill Boulevard to do laundry, the laundromat, one of my delights, not quite the democratic space of the post office or public library, but still delightful. And a hummingbird buzzed past me and alighted in a mostly dead tree poking almost up to the power line. The bird sat on the spindly little branch that bounced in the breeze, twisting its little head and big proboscis this way and that, but mostly just standing still, looking out over the little traffic jam on the far side of the street, not moving even as I got almost directly beneath the thing. I've never seen one sitting still like that for so long, so in the open. While I'm writing this, sitting on the curb, a young woman, a kid, walked by wearing a kind of cat hat, winter hat with pointy ears, it's about 88 degrees out today, and she was walking a mini Doberman pincher with pink booties sketching across the asphalt. Although my partner thinks the hummingbird might be my totem animal, there goes cat hat and doggy slippers again, given how they seem to follow me around. What can you say made you so entranced or even awe-inspired by this little hummingbird? I mean, in a way, I think the question is like, how do we not be entranced by a hummingbird? You know, (laughs) I think that's sort of the question. I live in Indiana, and I don't know, like hummingbirds are not daily occurrences. So it feels really special. And although in this instance, I was in a different place, I was in California, hummingbirds do not stop being sort of fantastic to me. They do not stop being sort of wonderful and wondrous to me. So that was sort of the thing. Like I just, you know, when I see hummingbirds, like (laughs) when I see some things, like they make me want to shout and hummingbirds are some of those things. That's awesome. In another piece called Sharing Love, you write about a mother and her child sharing the burden of carrying a large grocery sack together in Chinatown in New York City. Yeah. I suppose part of why I so adore the sack sharing is because most often this is a burden one or the other could manage just fine solo, which makes it different than dragging Granny's armoire up two flights of steps, say, or wrestling free a truck stuck hip deep in a snowbank. Yes, It's the lack of necessity of this act that's perhaps precisely why it delights me so. Everything that needs doing, getting the groceries or laundry home, would get done just fine without this meager collaboration. But the only thing that needs doing, without this meager collaboration, would not. What is it that drew you to this mother and child? This is one of the things that this practice reminded me of or tuned me into is one of these moments where I just saw this sort of very subtle collaboration. And those kinds of sweetnesses, maybe you call them or tendernesses, overlookable sweetnesses and collaborations, they are to me like, for one, they're constantly happening and they're like the fabric of our lives. 
And yet they're also sort of wonderful. The way that we so easily and constantly are actually sort of helping each other out, you know? And I've seen people do that before, but that day, maybe because of the frame of mind I was in, that day it occurred to me, oh, this is like one of the beautiful and minor collaborations that we're constantly in the midst of. I found something else that you said similarly moving because it lies at the heart of greater good science. You said, in almost every instance of our social lives, we are, if we pay attention, in the midst of an almost constant, if subtle, caretaking. This caretaking is our default mode, and it's always a lie that convinces us to act or believe otherwise. Always. How can we get better at seeing and embracing this default mode of being? Maybe it is the, like the practice of pointing to it. I think the harder work sometimes is identifying when it is happening, studying when it is happening, the collaboration, or that's what I'm talking about, like pointing out the ways that we are, in fact, sort of regularly, almost constantly sort of helping one another out. I think that's, it does, it feels like it's just practice, you know? Mm -hmm. And in a way, I feel like one of the fun things about this book is that it does that for me, like writing this book definitely was practice for me in attending to that fact. But it also feels sort of lovely because sometimes it feels like it also lets someone else sort of see that thing, you know? Sure. The science also suggests that doing a daily happiness practice, and in your case, attuning to and reflecting upon delightful moments every day, can actually rewire the brain like increase and prolong activation in pathways that signal pleasure. By regularly dwelling in delight, we get better at noticing, remembering, and seeking sources of goodness in life. The lens through which we see the world becomes more optimistic and hopeful, and we judge other people as more trustworthy, and we're more inclined to cooperate. Was any of that true for you? My field of vision became more aware and capable of picking up things that were delightful to me because I was spending time identifying and meditating on them every day. That was like my job. That was a job that I gave myself. I became sort of more acutely aware of like, oh, that thing delights me. That thing delights me. That thing delights me, which is sort of, you know, it feels nice <laughs> to, to be thinking about that every day. Yeah. It seems like it could have been scarcity, but it ended up being abundance. Yeah. 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 And to do that daily and to cultivate that as a muscle is like a real thing, you know? Yeah. Another one of your delights was about loitering. You were sitting at a cafe in Detroit and meditating on a no loitering sign on the door window. Can you share a part of that reflection with us? Sure. The darker your skin, the more likely you are to be loitering. Though a Patagonia jacket could do some work to disrupt that perception— a Patagonia jacket, colorful pants, tree-torn sneakers with short socks, an Ivy League ball cap, and a thick book that is not the Bible, and you're almost golden. Almost. There is a Carrie Mae Weems photograph of a woman in what looks to be some kind of textile factory, with an angel embroidered to the left breast of her shirt, where her heart resides. The woman, like the angel, has her arms splayed wide, almost in ecstasy, as though to embrace everything— so in the midst of her glee is she. Every time I see that photo, after I smile and have a genuine bodily opening on account of witnessing this delight, which is a moment of black delight, I look behind her for the boss. Uh-oh, I think. You're in a moment of non-productive delight. Heads up. 
which points to another of the synonyms for loitering, which I almost wrote as delight, taking one's time. For while the previous list of synonyms allude to time, taking one's time makes it kind of plain. For the crime of loitering, the idea of it is about ownership of one's own time, which must be sometimes wrested from the assumed owners of it, who are not you, back to the rightful, who is. And while having interpolated the policing of delight such that I am on the lookout for the overseer, even in photos I have studied hundreds of times, on the lookout always for the policer of delight, my work is studying this kind of glee, being on the lookout for it, and aspiring to it, floating away from the factory, as she seems to be. How was reflecting on the idea of loitering and how that's perceived to be related to the color of your skin one of your delights? Occasionally, what I do find delightful is also informed by its opposite. So loitering, it occurred to me that I love just hanging around. And then, of course, if I'm thinking about hanging around, it makes me think about, oh, well, part of the thing that I love about hanging around is that plenty of times I'm asked to move along. And so then it leads into a conversation, of course, a meditation on racism and public space and who's allowed to be where and when and how. That's how that sort of evolved. And I think quite a few of the essays actually do that. They, they have a delight, but then part of the meditation on the delight is also meditating on its absence. You've said that the Book of Delights became a study of interdependence for you. So often the things that did make me feel delight were moments of interdependence, moments of people helping each other out, or moments of tenderness, or moments of caretaking. And that was one of the things where I sort of realized, like, oh, this thing called interdependence, which is the real thing, makes me delightful. And the the second thing that I realized is that when I witness that, upon feeling that delight, I want to... (laughs) Tell someone. I want to share, you know? So there's this whole sharing thing that comes with it. And I haven't quite articulated this yet, you know, but there is something about the self that gets more sort of truly connected. Like there's some way that the self becomes more truly connected to other selves, you know, throughout all of this Mm -hmm. experience for me. That's, That's my feeling. So, Ross, you ended your 365-day challenge of writing down delights on your 43rd birthday. What was the last thing you wrote about? That was the fullness of that day. I was in Marfa, Texas, at a writing residency, and, you know, one of my best friends in the world was living right down the street for the month as well. And, you know, he made me lentils. I exercised. I took a walk. I listened to music. The sky was incredible. I got a couple letters. It was just sort of like a, a lovely a lovely day that also felt like a sort of conclusion to a project, but probably the continuation of a larger project. Do you find that you still engage in this looking for or savoring and appreciating delights, even though the project has come to a conclusion? Oh, 100%. Absolutely. And it's been really lovely because it's sort of You know, writing this book has helped me to, like, firmly articulate that my job as a writer, what I'm most curious about and my my ultimate inquiry is about joy, 
I think joy and love are sort of pretty much the same thing. That's my question. That's the question of my work, and maybe it's the question of my life. And I learned that from this book, and so that'll, that'll sort of carry forward for the long haul, I think. Do you have any expert tips or tricks or sage advice for people who might want to engage in this kind of noticing daily delights practice or even draft their own book of delights? I don't know. I guess I would just be like, <laughs> however it's fun to you, however it's fun and useful, I do feel like the practice of sharing what you love is, is crucial. However you do it, whether you do it by talking to someone or you write letters or you write your own book of delights, I do feel like sharing what you love with someone, and that someone might be you, might be yourself, is crucial to our well-being. Yes. Ross, you're such a champion of (laughs) the exercise of connecting with others in what we might call capitalizing on positive events. That's sharing these warm feelings, acknowledging the ways that we're all connected, and honoring the interdependence that that humans all share in enjoying the world that we live in. I want to thank you for joining us on The Science of Happiness. Thank you very much. Hiring the right team for your business can be a long and arduous process. With Indeed, there are no long-term contracts, you can pause your account at any time, and you only pay for what you need. Indeed.com is the hiring site that helps you find quality candidates with Indeed Instant Match. Indeed searches through the millions of resumes in their database to help show you great candidates instantly. Want your quality shortlist fast? You need Indeed. Right now, our listeners get a free $75 credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash happiness. This is Indeed's best offer available anywhere. Get a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash happiness. Indeed.com slash happiness. Offer valid through March 31st. Terms and conditions apply. We know from science that giving to others, especially those in need, can make us happier as a community. Unbound is an international nonprofit that partners with families living in extreme poverty, empowering them to become self-sufficient and fulfill their desired potential. When you sponsor a child, young adult, or elder through Unbound, you invest in personalized benefits that support goals chosen by the sponsored individual and their family. Unbound sends more than $100 million each year to support families in under-resourced countries. You can make a real and direct impact, offering hope, in the life of someone when they need it most. Partner with a new friend today at unbound.org slash happiness. Research shows that when we savor the moments that we're in, or even a moment in the past, it can make us happier. Kara Palmer is an assistant professor of psychology at Montana State University. She studies the impact of savoring on our well-being. You can think of savoring pretty broadly, right? So this can refer to any way that we attend to or appreciate or really just maximize the positive experiences that we have in our daily lives. Savoring can also be avoiding certain sort of like happiness traps. So, you know, when good things happen, if we're spending time thinking about ways that those good things might still go wrong or minimize the importance of what happened or simply just not taking the time to stop to think about it, I think could be problematic too. So savoring is really the combination of appreciating good things and not focusing on the negative 
aspects of some of those good events too. So we know that people who tend to savor more often, they generally experience just greater emotional well-being in their daily lives, greater happiness, greater self-esteem. You see these increases in happiness, not just in the moment when you're savoring, but also over time too, and just your general emotional well-being in terms of our long-term emotional health. We know that not only do people who typically savor experience all of these good outcomes, but this is something we can also train people to do as well. We can essentially just ask people to take the time and to sit back and really reflect on good experiences that they have um, and really just be mindful of what those experiences were like. And so studies that have done that have shown that over time, if people do this and practice this, you actually see decreases in depressive symptoms. I think in our society, right, we are constantly on the go, a lot of people are overworked, and a lot of times I think we think of happiness and feeling good feelings as a luxury and almost like an afterthought. So I think just taking the time to stop and reflect on good events and how good you feel during those good events I think can be incredibly beneficial, whether it's just stopping for a second and thinking about it or stopping and writing it down but also being open to expressing yourself when you do feel good and if something good or exciting happens sharing that with somebody you love or sharing that with somebody who will also be happy for you i think these are all great ways that we can take time to stop and smell the roses so to speak If you'd like to try a practice to bring more happiness into your life, including practices focused on helping us savor life's delights, visit our Greater Good in Action website at ggia.berkeley.edu. I'm Emiliana Simon-Thomas, the Science Director at the Greater Good Science Center, filling in for DACR this week. Thanks for joining me on the Science of Happiness. Our podcast is a co-production of UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center and PRI-PRX, with production assistance from Jenny Cataldo and Ben Manila of BMP Audio. Our producer is Shuka Kalantari. Our associate producer is Annie Berman. Our executive producer is Jane Park. Our editor-in-chief is Jason Marsh. And special thanks goes to UC Berkeley's Graduate School of Journalism. Join us for a live recording of an episode of The Science of Happiness, and hear from me, Dacker, Jack Cornfield, and other great speakers at our first ever three-day Science of Happiness event held in Northern California near Santa Cruz. Learn more at ggsc.berkeley.edu.